Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word this evening to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Romans 1, 18 through 32. Let's hear now the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's blessing this evening, we take up these last several verses of Romans chapter 1 and bringing to a conclusion our consideration of this latter portion of the chapter. We've seen this great decline from ingratitude to idolatry, immorality, perversion, and now just utter chaos as wickedness is unleashed throughout society, destabilizing even the most basic relationships and institutions and faculties of, of humanity. 
We know that Paul is setting the stage to proclaim the Gospel. He's establishing human sin by demonstrating the need that all the Gentile nations of the world have for the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. These nations are marked by all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we see the climax of this, the final stage as it were, that's introduced to us in verse 29, that they're filled with all unrighteousness and they are full of envy, murder, strife, etc. So they're filled with evil and iniquity. And the irony of it is that these evil nations are filled with unrighteousness and sexual immorality and all of these vices, yet at the same time, they're utterly empty of all that is truly satisfying. And we saw that this morning. And just reflecting upon it, we we saw their corrupt character. We saw their toxic relationships. And we're going to this evening consider their venomous words and their destabilizing deficits. But we saw that at one and the same time, they were filled with unrighteousness and yet have a God-shaped hole in their hearts and in their lives. That's why they're covetous. That's why they have an insatiable desire for sexual immorality and to have their lusts and pleasures fulfilled because they're never satisfied. And our goal this morning was to consider those who are filled with unrighteousness, who are in need of the righteousness of Christ, to replace that void and that emptiness. We considered that. And just to reflect on that before we pick up where we left off, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And what Paul is doing is saying to the ungodly nations around him in in the city of Rome as he's equipping the church to proclaim the Gospel to them, he's saying these ungodly nations are filled with unrighteousness, but it's dissatisfying. And he wants to provoke them to hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God through Christ, after the imputed righteousness of justification, what Christ has accomplished for them through His death, burial, and resurrection to make them righteous in God's sight. He also wants to give them an insatiable desire for true righteousness in their hearts and lives, that they would be filled with holiness and righteous living. And that's what he's going to get to later in the epistle to the Romans. Right now, they're filled with unrighteousness. And that could be you here this evening. You're filled with something that's never going to satisfy you. You're filled, and yet at the same time, you're empty. You need to hunger and thirst for that righteousness of Christ that can reconcile you to God. You need to hunger and thirst for the presence of the Holy Spirit filling you with righteousness, with peace, with joy. In Psalm 81, verse 10, God says, I am the the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage in Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. He's willing to save all who call upon His name. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it with honey from the rock and the finest of wheat. Proverbs 14.14 says that the backslider is filled with his own ways, but the, the man of God The true believer is satisfied from above. And that's what we're getting at here as we consider this last 
phase of cultural chaos were showing that this pervasive contagion of sin as it continues to spread, as it fills people with unrighteousness and envy and strife and deceit, it never truly satisfies you. And it keeps prompting you to want more and more, to be filled with your own ways. But the Lord says, you need to be filled with Christ and you need to be filled not with your own ways, but to be filled from above. Now, we'll, we'll pursue that further, but I wanted to give that as an introduction. This is what we're getting at here. This is why we're meditating on these series of lists of sins. You can see in verse 29, that first list, the corrupt character filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. We saw that this morning. The corrupt character of the ungodly as they've been given over to all kinds of evil. We then proceeded to look at their toxic relationships. That out of this sinful character flows this rivalry, this bitterness, this evil and unpleasant toxic relationship with others. And so there's envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. Viewing people with an evil eye which the Proverbs talks about, which Jesus talks about. The whole Bible talks about it. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 9, Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, the jubilee, is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you and it becomes sin among you. In other words, God set up Israel so that the slaves would be free and the debts would be forgiven on a certain cycle of seven years. And, and eventually on a, a cycle of seven segments of seven years, the, the 49 years leading up to the Jubilee. And the point is that it would be against your own self-interest to lend money to someone just before the Jubilee. But he says, if you look at your brother who's in a poor predicament, and you look at him with an evil eye, with a self-seeking eye, with a self-centered eye, and you don't take pity on him, then God will judge your, your attitude. God will judge your ungodly perspective on other people focused on your own self-interest so you see the toxic the toxicity of these relationships envious murderous striving against people biting and devouring them deceiving them and looking at them with an evil eye toxic relationships but now we consider thirdly their venomous words out of their evil hearts come evil words venomous words And we pick up in our text where Paul begins this particular list, which is at the end of verse 29. You'll see in italics it says, they are whisperers. And those italicized words are meant to emphasize, though those words are not in the Greek text, it's meant to emphasize that the next several terms that are used are describing not just sins, but sinners. It doesn't say you shouldn't whisper and these people are whispering. It says they are whisperers. And it's important to recognize that when we deal with God's wrath against 
all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, we're not simply dealing with sins. We're dealing with sinners. If I tell a lie, what does that make me? A liar. If I murder someone, what does that make me? A murderer. In a way, we we like to make this distinction between sin and sinners. As if, well, I commit that sin, but that doesn't define who I am. By nature, our sinful depravity does define who we are. And that's why we need salvation through Christ to redefine us, to become a new creature in Christ, to be liberated from sin. Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, he lists all these evil and abominable perversions and sins, and then he says, such were some of you. That's not just what you did, that's who you were. And if you're outside of Christ here this evening, then your sin is not just something that clings to you, it is literally who you are. And he lists a number of these sins of speech. And he says, this is who you are. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Well, let's consider this. They are. You are. I am. If we're, if we're on this list, we have to reckon with who we are and, and that we need to come to Christ for forgiveness and for sanctifying grace. Isaiah famously comes to grips with the glory of God and with his own sin. He sees the King in his beauty and glory on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. And he says, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So Isaiah, one of the godliest saints on the earth at that time, who is known for his godly words, looks at the glory of God and the holiness of the angels who are praising God, and he looks at their beautiful, sinless speech, And he's convicted in his own heart at his own sin. And he mentions that he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognizes what Paul is saying here about the culture in which he lives. That that it has been declining and degrading to the point where it's a people of unclean lips. Where it's a people of venomous words and evil speech. But Isaiah's first thought is not to condemn the culture but it is to examine himself and to recognize the sins of his own tongue and not merely to condemn the sins around him in the culture and in the world. The Apostle Paul would have us to treat this text in a similar way. That as we examine our own culture in light of this text, as we see the cultural decline, as we see it affecting people's character and their relationships and their words, We need to look first and foremost at ourselves. We need, like Isaiah, to secure our own mask before assisting others. We need to understand our own sin and be undone and be brought to the righteousness of Christ. And then, here am I, send me. And then we preach and proclaim and call to repentance within our society. But these venomous words are characteristic of the the declining culture that Paul speaks of here. Actually, he elaborates on this in chapter 3. Chapter 3, famously, verse 10, he says there's no one righteous. He begins to expound upon this unrighteousness that characterizes both Jew and Gentile. 
And it's not long before he begins to speak of their evil words. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Again, you see that language. They're filled with this. They're full of cursing and of bitterness. They're filled with all unrighteousness and that unrighteousness works its way out into their speech. Their venomous words. And the first thing Paul mentions in our text is really a, we're going to take the first two terms together. In fact, a number of these terms, a number of these designations fit together as couplets. So first we see he, he addresses whisperers and backbiters. Whisperers and backbiters. Now these are two sides of the same coin. The sin that Paul is addressing here is evil speaking. Speaking evil about somebody. And there are primarily two different ways in which we do that as sinners. We can whisper behind somebody's back and gossip about them. Or we can bite back and bite and devour them directly with uncharitable speech. So you've got the whisperers that are in the corner, you know, whispering so that the person doesn't find out, speaking behind their back. And then you have the backbiters, people that are biting back like a dog that's cornered and they just lunge directly confronting people to the face. So it's either behind the back or to the face. Either way, it's evil speaking. Speaking evil about someone or speaking evil to someone. The Scriptures speak of our tongues when we do this as drawn swords. Even at, at, at times even, uh, the, the whisperers, though, uh, though they may speak something that the Psalms say are smooth as butter, their words are smooth as butter, yet in their heart is war. And so then they, they whisper and they draw their sword behind the person's back. So evil speaking is the issue here. And again, ex- let's examine ourselves. Let's examine ourselves. Do we speak evil about people behind their back or to their face? It's not saying you can't confront people. It's not saying there aren't times when you, know, you can mention somebody's name and they're not present. But are we speaking evil of people? And that's something we need to examine ourselves and think about. And where we find that sin, we need to repent. We need to say with Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, but that's not an excuse. I've sinned, and we need to confess that and confess it to the Lord. Confess it to the person that we've spoken evil to or about or whatever. We need to confess these things and make it right and seek the Lord's forgiveness, especially as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Secondly, haters of God, violent. These two go together. Haters of God, and violent. Now the phrase haters of God is really one word in the Greek. And it means someone who is profane, someone who is unholy, someone who is engaging in sacrilege. They're they're blasphemers. That's really what this word means, I believe, in context here. Just looking at it from all angles, that seems to be the, the operative idea. That the person despises God, profanes Him, and is sacrilegious and blasphemous toward God. And the word violent 
speaks of the corresponding disregard for other people. And so we can, we can be violent in our speech toward God, and, and you see it today, people like Bill Maher and other comedians and public personalities mocking the living God, making fun of the Bible, making fun of Christianity, just utterly despising, mocking, blaspheming God. But at the same time, we can do that to other people. We can revile them. That's the idea here with this word violent. It speaks of one who reviles other people. Not just speaking evil of them, but going over the top and just uh, parading, as Psalm 73 says, parading around the earth with, with harsh, over-the-top, evil language against God and man. And again, we see in our culture that people no longer fear. They no longer fear things that they would have feared in the past. Uh, you think of when uh, Belshazzar got out the temple vessels in Babylon the night before Babylon fell. And he's getting drunk using the, the holy vessels of the temple. And he's encouraging people to just completely mock and profane these tokens of the presence of the living God. And you see just the unbridled sacrilege and profanity that you would have thought that he would have feared. Now, he feared when he saw the handwriting on the wall, but he should have feared to do that. But we find ourselves in a culture today where people simply do not fear God or man. Jesus describes this in the parable of the persistent widow, Luke 18.2. He says, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Who did not fear God nor regard man. That sense of God's presence, even for an unconverted person, someone who, who just has a sense, well, there's certain things I shouldn't say. Some of us have street preached before and we've encountered hecklers and people that will say all kinds of blasphemous things that you think to yourself, boy, I wonder, even if, if somebody was unconverted, wouldn't they just shy away from using God's name or the name of the Lord Jesus Christ attached to those kind of foul and abominable words and phrases, but they're empowered, they're unleashed as God gives them over to this blasphemous, reviling spirit. In addition, Paul goes on to speak of those who are proud and who are boasters. So they use their words to puff up themselves with pride, to, to vaunt themselves and parade themselves and show themselves to be superior over others. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, look at this great Babylon that I have built. Using our words to promote and to glorify ourselves. Famously, when Herod, he didn't even really use his own words to glorify himself, but the people that he was speaking to in the book of Acts said, oh, what a wonderful speech, Herod. It's the voice, not of a man, but of God Himself. And, and Herod didn't rebuke them. He didn't step in and say, your words have gone way too far. And he didn't humble himself in his words. He didn't say anything boastful, but he didn't humble himself. He didn't speak against that type of rhetoric. And what happened? The angel of the Lord struck him dead and he was eaten by worms. God hates pride. We're told in the Scriptures that pride goes before destruction. Listen to this quote from Thomas Brooks, the Puritan. 
He says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty mind before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Proverbs 18, 12. Brooks goes on. Herod fell from a throne of gold to a bed of dust. Nebuchadnezzar fell from the state of a mighty king to be a beast. Adam fell from innocency to mortality. The angels fell from heaven to hell, from felicity to misery. Another Puritan says this, God abhors them worst who adore themselves most. Pride is not a Bethel, that is a house where God dwells, but a Babel. That is a noisome dungeon in which Satan abides. The Scriptures everywhere condemn pride and say that it's a mark. It's a precursor of the judgment of God. Proverbs 15.25, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud. James 4.6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How are we using our words? Again, examining ourselves. How are we using our words in conversation? What are we saying? What are we not saying? The Bible says that the Gospel leaves no room for boasting. In fact, God designed the Gospel such that there would be no place at all for boasting. Romans 4 verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And uh, it's almost like when I see that, that last part of the verse, but not before God. You think of uh, a, you know, a basketball player, uh, Shaquille O'Neal or Dikembe Mutombo, who's just blocked a shot. Not in my house. Uh, not before God, Paul says. You're not going to bring that stuff in here. God does not tolerate boasting. We should know this. We're Calvinists. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that we had to be born again from above by the Spirit of God in order to even see and ultimately to enter the kingdom of God. And yet, how easy it is to become proud about the knowledge that we have. To become proud about the things that we're learning. To boast. To speak. Not necessarily something that if the court reporter was typing it up that you would see pride in it. But sometimes it's the way we speak. It's the way that we communicate. Are we communicating in a condescending way? We all, I need to examine myself. We all need to examine ourselves. Even if what we're saying is okay, is it possible that the manner and the tone that we're using comes across in a condescending way? We need to examine that. We need to repent of that. We need to make changes. But this is the characteristic. This is the culture of spiritual decline that Paul is describing. Proud. Boasters. Psalm 12 makes this same point. Psalm 12, verse 1, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? That's the mentality of our society. And we follow in their footsteps. We follow in their evil example of sinful speech when, when we sprinkle our words not with grace, but with pride and with condescension. 
Paul also mentions another aspect of sinful speech, inventors of evil. As I said this morning, that's better translated, discoverers of evil. The word that's translated here, inventors, is actually the word from which we get the word eureka. That you've found something. You're looking for something, then you discover that thing. And you make it known. Eureka. And this, this means that in a sinful culture, in a sinful society, in a sinful soul, in a sinful family, in a sinful church, there will be a tendency to go looking for offenses, to go looking for things, to be accusers of the, brother, of the brethren and of the sisters in the congregation. And we're going to get to this more in 1 Corinthians 13. Love thinks no evil. But, but just speaking to this here in our text, we need to be careful that we're not on an expedition to find other people's sins. We've got the Lord's Supper. I need to look for sins in my own life. The ones I know about are the tip of the iceberg. Lord, cleanse me from hidden sins. Psalm 19, I think it's verse 12. We need to recognize the need to examine ourselves. We can so very easily be looking around at other people, looking for theological errors, looking for things our, our radar is is tuned up to the hilt and we're looking to find problems and sins in other people's lives. I'm not saying there's not a place for correcting other, other brothers and sisters, but the fact is we need to be careful that first and foremost we're trying to discover my own sin, your own sin, and bring that confession to the Lord and seek His forgiveness. But you know as well as I do, we live in a culture that's been given over to this that our culture is always looking, always got the magnifying glass to find someone or something that they can condemn and cancel discoverers of evil. They're looking for it, they find it, they expose it, they gleefully rejoice, another one bites the dust. That's the culture that Paul is describing here. And we don't want that culture to come into the life of the church. We're not trying to cover anything up, believe me. We're not trying, we want to walk in the light. We've had church discipline cases in our presbytery. I'm not saying that it's wrong to have judicial investigators. Okay, all of that is valid. I'm just saying in our interpersonal lives, you know, let, let's, let's get out the, the Sherlock Holmes outfit for our own sin first and foremost. Venomous words. Fourthly, fourthly, they're destabilizing deficits. Destabilizing deficits. Deficit. So we've seen their corrupt character, their toxic relationships, their venomous words. Fourthly, their destabilizing deficits. I mentioned this morning that in this list from disobedience to parents all the way down to unmerciful, each of these Greek terms begins with the prefix a, just like atheism. Theism is the belief in God. Atheism is disbelief in God. That prefix A negates what comes afterward. And that pattern exists for the next six terms. As I said, from disobedience to parents all the way down to unmerciful. Now what is Paul saying here? Why is he concluding his list with these destabilizing deficits? Well, what he's pointing out is that when you're filled with unrighteousness, you become emptied of the very things that are necessary for an orderly 
and lawful and functional society. If you want to be full of envy, murder, and strife, filled with unrighteousness and sexual immorality and perversion and covetousness, if you want to be filled with that, you're not going to be able to be filled with these things that are vital to any type of functional society. And he says this society in stage 5 chaos doesn't have these things, it lacks these things, and it is utterly unraveling before our very eyes because of it. So first, disobedient to parents. These individuals that Paul describes as characteristic of the culture are disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. One of the fundamental building blocks, if not the fundamental building block for the family, the church, and the state is respect for authority. And that begins in the home. That begins with children and their parents. And I preface this by saying, whenever I address this issue, a baby cries somewhere, so that's okay. Um, that, that's why we're here, you know, to, to, to be working with our children and helping them to benefit from the means of grace. But the point is that uh, disobedience to parents strikes at the foundation of everything. Listen to what Proverbs 30 tells us of what happens in a society when you have a generation of people that don't respect their parents. And by the way, any society is only one generation away from that. And I think we're seeing that generation rising up before our very eyes. Proverbs 30, verse 11. There's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. That's the same generation. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There's a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. The leech has two daughters, give and give. What's he saying? That when children are not raised by a father and a mother, now I know there are extraordinary circumstances, God gives the grace for those situations, but when there isn't predominantly a biblical family structure, raising children, whether they're converted parents or not, just even at the very basic level, parents raising their children, with some degree of faithfulness, if that does not exist, then children are not disciplined. They're not taught to respect their parents. They're not taught to respect authority. Their, their rebellion branches out and it, it is contagious throughout society and everything unravels. They become proud. They won't be corrected. They're pure in their own eyes. They won't, uh, they're not washed from their filthiness. They don't think they're filthy. They don't They don't need to listen to anybody. They know everything they need to know. How lofty are their eyes. Their eyelids are lifted up. They have ambition. They want to do this and that and the other. And they disregard the concerns of others. Their duty toward their neighbor. Their teeth are like swords. Their their mouth, they don't just curse their parents. They curse other people. And they're filled with anger and frustration. And they take out that frustration among others. They're not concerned for the poor, but they're in it for themselves. It's all about me. They haven't learned in the family to make sacrifices. And so the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, 
they trample them underfoot, they steamroll them to get what they want, and they have a sense of entitlement. They're like the daughters of the leech. And you see this in our society. Children that are not raised in a home with a sense of work ethic and I need to do this and fulfill my tasks, my responsibilities. No, they believe everybody owes them everything. And, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to forgive my tax or my, uh, my loans for college and the government's going to give me check after check after check of um, stimulus money. The, the daughters of the leech give, give, give. It never ends. And it all begins with disobedience to parents. And my friends, this can be a problem in the church as well. God says to His people in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So this is true of societies, of nations. It's true of the church. Ephesians 6 applies that same principle to the church in Ephesus. So if you want your society, as Deuteronomy expounds later the meaning of that uh, promise in the, in the fifth commandment, if you want your, your nation or your church to be prolonged in the land from generation to generation, Deuteronomy 4 verse 40, if you want it to continue, not just long life for yourself, but if you want longevity from generation to generation, you don't want your church's candlestick blown out. You don't want your nation to fall apart and fall to pieces and be taken over by another nation. If you want that longevity in the land, there needs to be obedience to parents, discipline of children, faithful, consistent, yet imperfect of course, but faithful, consistent discipline of children. Where that is not the case, churches, societies, nations, families, will poof out of existence or become lost in oblivion. The, the staying power of a nation and of the kingdom of God in particular is grounded in respect for parents and for authority. So this is a destabilizing deficit. You fill yourself with unrighteousness. You lose respect for authority. Uh, that's the writing on the wall. Secondly, and we'll take the next two together, undiscerning and untrustworthy. Undiscerning and untrustworthy. And you can see right away the connection between these two sins. This is a dangerous, potent cocktail of sin. When you have a society that's filled with people that are undiscerning and naive and lack common sense. They've been given over to this defective, debased, reprobate mind uh, they don't think on their feet too well, and so they're easily deceived. Proverbs 14, verse uh, 15. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. You see how simple our society has become with its defective mind under the judgment of God easily duped and deceived to the point where leadership, you see it in the church, you see it in the state, evil, deceptive leaders can have a field day. It's very easy for them to deceive people because people are too trusting. Uh, we're not saying we want everybody to be suspicious and accusatory, but the fact is that you need to be able to smell the rat in the woodpile. You need to be able to see when things are not looking right. Use your common sense and 
don't just believe every single thing somebody tells you or else you're going to end up buying beachfront property in Nebraska, so on and so forth. Undiscerning and untrustworthy. So if you've got a bunch of people that are naive and just, in a sense, looking to be duped and deceived, and now you place them alongside people that have no problem of conscience with lacking lacking integrity. They have no problem deceiving people. They're untrustworthy. King James says they're covenant breakers. They make promises. They have no intention of keeping those promises. They make statements. They have no intention of substantiating those statements. They don't care. They just say whatever they need to say. And these undiscerning people just continue to drink the Kool-Aid. 2 Timothy 3.13 This is... Remember this uh, parallel type of passage about wickedness in the world as it declines. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. There's the cultural decline. Deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving and being deceived. But he says to Timothy, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, we live in a chaotic, evil culture where there's a lot of lack of common sense, there's a lot of naivete, and there's quite a bit of deception. You can hardly believe half the things you hear in the news. And there are many things that you can be deceived about. And Paul certainly could have urged Timothy about a whole host of things that he might be deceived about. But the one thing that he points out that you must not be, if you're going to be deceived by various things and so on. Okay, but make sure you're not deceived on this, the truth of God's Word. Make sure that the evil men and imposters, if they dupe you in this area and that area, and there's some conspiracy theory and you didn't hear about it uh, from your friend, uh, okay, but make sure you're not deceived. Make sure you're not undiscerning concerning your eternal destiny, concerning salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Don't let anyone take that from you. Don't be so undiscerning that somebody comes in and says, well, you've learned, Timothy, you've learned from an early age the Scriptures, and you've been told that they're able to make you wise unto salvation, but don't listen to that. Don't listen to that. Don't believe these conspiracy theorists that come in and say, oh, the Word of God was corrupted from the 300s on, and you can't trust your Bible. These people who come in and with their conspiracy theories, just like in the days of the apostles, Jesus' body was stolen by His disciples. He didn't really rise from the dead. All the truths that you've heard from an early age, from the holy, inspired, infallible Word of God, oh, you don't have to listen to these things. Paul says, you must continue in these things. You must continue in the things which you have learned and you've been assured of from whom you have learned them. In other words, it's not just propositions and doctrinal knowledge, but you need to be assured by God Himself. God Himself wrote this book. All Scripture, He says, is breathed out by God. It's God's Word. Don't be deceived. 
Don't let Satan pick your pocket. Don't let don't don't trade your spiritual birthright for a bowl of red stew. Cling to these things. Continue in these things. We need to hear that now more than ever in a culture where so many Christians, so many people who grow up in the church are are being sold a bill of goods when they hit high school, when they hit college, and they're trading all of their covenantal blessings for nothing. And they'll end up in the pigsty with the prodigal son wishing they could fill their bellies with the husks that the pigs are eating and they don't even have that. And we pray that when people get in that situation that they remember that in the Father's house there's bread enough and to spare. But why even go to that foreign land? Why even mess with that? You have the truth. You know the truth. Believe it. Continue in it. Don't be, don't be duped. Don't be undiscerning. He says as well that there's unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Jesus says that when lawlessness abounds, the love of many will grow cold. And it may be that in that text, Jesus is speaking of the many, His people, the church. And that may be the case. But I think it applies more broadly as well that when lawlessness abounds, there is this destabilizing deficit Not only is there no respect for authority, not only is there no common sense, not only is there no integrity and faithfulness to one's promises and so on, but there's also a lack of love. And he uses these three terms, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Unloving. This word, really it's unclear why it's translated unloving because I think you actually lose the... The, the sense of the, the distinct meaning of this word here. What it means is without natural affection. It takes a word that refers to the natural inclination that we have to love our family members. For parents to love their children, for children to love their parents, brothers and sisters. It, that natural affection for one's relatives, the members of one's immediate family, it takes that word and it negates it. And it says that there's a a lack of that natural affection within the human family. There's a hard-heartedness that develops within these most basic relationships. Jesus says even the Pharisees and the tax collectors love their friends and as it were, they love their family. But here, God gives people over to such utter insanity and selfishness that They don't love their own family. They don't love those, specifically we think of some of the most basic natural affections of a mother for her children. I mean, in a way, it doesn't get any more basic than that, does it? A mother's love for her children. The Bible compares God's love for His people to a mother's love for that little infant that's been born. And we think of in the maternity ward when a baby is born and they say that one of the most important things is to to get the baby to its mother so she can hold that baby against her breast and just have that contact between mother and child skin against skin and there's just this intimacy and it's it it has health benefit it's just a beautiful wonderful thing that god has designed Natural affection. Yes, we're in a fallen world. There's pain in childbearing. 
But the Bible does say that, that the pain in childbearing leads to the joy of giving birth. And that's the natural affection that even exists in a fallen world. But we're told that when there is this judgment of God and He gives us over to a defective mind, that there's a lack of that natural affection. It's also true between children and their parents, especially as parents get older and become more vulnerable. And there's this natural inclination that God has made within us as children, even as we grow up and get older and we're middle age and we see our parents becoming feeble and weak and in need of help that we want to help them. We want to house them. We want to take care of them as best we can because we recognize what they did for us and the sacrifices that they made for us. And so we want to return that favor. That's not a mark of saving grace. That's just an inborn natural affection that grace should only increase in the lives of God's people. And yet look at our society. You see mothers murdering their babies and protesting that, oh, you need to give me my reproductive rights. Well, you have reproductive rights uh, you have the right to reproduce, but it's not reproduction if you murder the baby. You don't have destructive rights. You have reproductive rights. Have the baby reproduce from generation to generation. But you see, we've been given over to this hatred. And I wish I could say that it's all the man's fault. I know that would be popular if I said that. And those of us that labor at the abortion clinic, we know that it's largely, you know, there's a significant fault with the man and with the men in these situations. There's no doubt about that. But there are women that actually want to kill their baby. And there are women that will mock Christians at the clinic who are offering help, offering assistance, offering free medical care, offering financial assistance, offering to adopt the baby, offering eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the women will mock and will gloat. I'm not saying every single one, but I'm saying many of them will gloat that they're going to kill their baby. We're thankful that that's not all of them. But it is, a, it is a factor. You look at what's happening today, it's almost unthinkable. You would think that when it comes to the issue of abortion, that that would be a woman's issue on the other side. You would think that someone who wants to defend little babies would find that most women would support that. And, and we hope that many women will, but today it's viewed as, as a woman's issue to promote the killing of infants. You know, when they came out with women's suffrage, with women's right to vote, they said that one of the main reasons they wanted this to, to take effect was that women are more compassionate. And when these issues come up in the life of the nation or the state or the community, we need more women because they're sympathetic, they're compassionate. They're going to want to protect life. They're going to want to protect the most weak and vulnerable in society. Men are cruel and harsh. Women are compassionate and loving and have that natural affection. And so what an asset for women to vote. But you see today, we've been given over to this wickedness without natural affection. And women, more than ever, are are actually using their political rights and privileges to destroy life rather than to compassionately save it. Unloving, without natural affection. You see as well, unforgiving. Unforgiving. I think King James says, implacable. Unwilling. There's just no way to satisfy 
this type of person's demand for retribution and justice. They, they have some kind of quarrel with someone, some type of beef against that person, a bone to pick, whatever illustration you want to use, and they're unforgiving. The person can ask forgiveness, they can repent, and it's never enough. Implacable, unforgiving. And my friends, far be it from us as God's people that we should ever, that we should ever be unloving, by the way. That we should ever not take care of our children and of our aging parents and show them the love they showed us. Far be it from us as God's people that we should ever be implacable, that we should ever be unforgiving, that we should, ever, that we should be anything other than easily entreated, ready to forgive even as God in Christ has forgiven us. It's one thing for the world to be implacable and to refuse to forgive. It's another thing for those who proclaim to the world a message of forgiveness and we won't forgive each other. And we're always talking about those offenses that this other person did and this person and that person. And my friends, we need to have hearts of forgiveness. You say they haven't repented. Well, uh, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. You should still be merciful and willing to forgive, willing to cover it in love. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18, and specifically verse 28, where a servant is forgiven a fortune, a fortune's worth of debt. Millions of dollars, as it were. And just for a few dollars, that same servant goes out and basically strangles the life out of someone who owes him just a few dollars. My friends, if that's happening in the church... We need to repent and we ought not to come to the Lord's table seeking to feast upon the body and blood of Christ as if we're going to receive a fresh assurance of forgiveness from the Lord if we're not willing to give a fresh assurance of forgiveness to those who ask us and to cover these things in love. Unforgiving. Unmerciful. My time is gone. I'm not going to dwell on that, but I think you can see how that word ties into the other ones as well. When someone's in need, are we looking to help them? Or are we irritated by the needs that other people have? Someone in the family gets sick. Someone in the family needs help. As parents, are we irritated by that? Or are we like Jesus, who at the end of a long Sabbath day, healed virtually every single person in the community who came and lined up outside the house? Are we merciful? Do we pity and show compassion toward those in need. Well, my friends, these Gentiles who were condemned here without excuse had no Bible. They had no Bible. At best, they had some contact with Jews whose conduct was so hypocritical that they, they responded by blaspheming God. And yet their condemnation was inescapable. They knew the righteous judgment of God. How much more yourself and myself. How much more as we prepare for the Lord's Supper ought we to know God's righteous judgment? How much more ought we to judge ourselves that we might not be judged at the Lord's table? How much more ought we to confess our sins and take refuge in the righteousness of Christ and seek by His grace to respect authority, to respect and honor our parents, to be more discerning, to be more trustworthy and faithful to the promises that we've made to be more affectionate and loving toward those who are most vulnerable, particularly in our families, and to be forgiving and to be merciful 
toward those around us. My friends, we have our work cut out for us, but God is working in each believer's life. He enables us to find these things, to discover them, to confess them, and to overcome these sins to His honor and glory. Are you hungering and thirsting to to be rid of all the unrighteousness and the fornication and the envy and the strife and to be filled with righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit? As we conclude this portion of our Romans series, chapter 1, I just want to point out a verse toward the end of the epistle that is so refreshing. As Paul's reflecting on the nations, the Gentiles being filled with unrighteousness, we might think that they're a lost cause, and we might feel that way as Christians coming to the Lord's table and examining ourselves. We feel like we're just filled and burdened with sin. But notice in chapter 15, I'm closing with this, chapter 15, where he speaks of his ministry among these very same Gentiles who were filled with all unrighteousness. He says that Christ became, verse 8, Christ became a servant to the circumcision, verse 9, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. These are the same stage 5 Gentiles Seems like a lost cause. The very people that we see around us in our culture. He says, I will confess your name among the Gentiles. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Do you view the unconverted people around you as pre-Christians? As people that may very well be on the verge of saving conversion to be joined to his people. That's how Paul viewed the Gentiles. That's what he's quoting in the Psalms. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud Him, all you peoples. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Nonsense, Paul says, by the grace of God, they will become worshipers. Not of the creature, but of the Creator. Verse 12, he quotes Isaiah, in Christ the Gentiles will hope. And then listen to verses 13 and 14. And apply this to yourself. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. He says the grace of God came into this Gentile world with such dynamic power that their, their unrighteousness that filled them was taken away and they were filled with all joy and peace in believing. They abounded in hope, not looking at the doom and gloom of judgment at the last day, but filled now with hope of glory by the power of the Spirit. He says, you brethren, these formerly abominable, unconverted Gentiles, filled with unrighteousness. He says, you also, you're filled with goodness. Filled with all knowledge. You suppressed it in unrighteousness before, but by the grace of God, you're now filled with the knowledge of Christ. And you're even able to admonish one another. These Gentiles who who would not tolerate God in their knowledge, now they've got so much knowledge, they have knowledge to spare. They're admonishing. 
They're instructing one another. My friends, let's look at Romans 1 not merely as a sad commentary on our culture, but as an encouraging reminder that all of the gospel fruit that you see throughout Paul's ministry took place in a stage five culture, in a culture that was filled with ingratitude, idolatry, immorality, perversion, and utter ethical chaos. And the gospel was the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is You who have created the world. It is You who will judge the world in righteousness through Christ. It is You who have redeemed Your people through the Lord Jesus Christ, even pouring out Your wrath upon Him and then raising Him from the dead for our justification, seating Him at Your right hand in glory, where He now builds His church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We pray that You would use this passage to convict us of our sin, that we would come to You as Isaiah being undone, that we would confess our sin, even the sins of our lips, and that that coal from the altar would touch our lips and that we would be cleansed and pardoned and that we would then be commissioned as Your servants and Your ambassadors saying, here am I, send me, that we might then go and admonish and instruct and evangelize those around us, speaking and adorning that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.